Well, I'd like to welcome all of you again to Faith Lutheran Church, and a special welcome to all of you guys online. My name is John, as Brian mentioned. I'm one of the disciples in training here at Faith Lutheran Church, and it's my honor and privilege to be sharing God's Word with you guys this morning. If you got your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to turn it to Titus chapter 2. We're going to continue our sermon series this morning on the um, God's blueprint for a healthy church, and we're going through the book of Titus today. And um, this book of Titus is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. And as you recall from prior weeks, Paul and his traveling companions were pretty much the first church planting team. And as they traveled around planting churches, uh, they, they traveled hither and yon. And, and uh, we've got a map up here um, behind me. They eventually established a number of churches on the island of Crete. And there are actually multiple churches on the island of Crete um, because there are multiple towns on the island of Crete. And and so there were churches in these various towns. And as Paul prepared to move on, Titus was one of the uh, Christians that had developed in his faith and in leadership. And Paul left Titus behind and said, I've got to go take care of some things. I'm going to have you oversee these churches that are remaining here on the island of Titus. And so this uh, book of Titus is a series of instructions that Paul leaves to Titus to uh, tell him how to go about leading the church and leading the people. And in the greeting of this letter, Paul reminds Titus that um, Jesus is the hope in which we put um, our salvation. We must surrender our own will to Jesus on a daily basis. So that became kind of the first layer of the church, the first part of the foundation of it. Jesus is that soil on which the church is built. And then you've got the foundation of the church, which is the leaders of the church. And the leaders of the church provide the direction and the guidance um, and instruction to the people. And that kind of creates that foundation that goes on top of the soil. And then you've got the third aspect of the blueprint of a healthy church, and that is these plumb lines or God's truth, God's word. That's how you root out false teaching. That's how you can tell the difference between teaching that is true and righteous and teaching that is false and misleading. And Paul gives instructions for how to deal with false teachers, whether they are simply misguided and speaking out of a lack of knowledge, or whether they actually have some questionable intentions for their false teaching. Paul gives some pretty direct and harsh instructions for how to deal with those false teachers. And those, those um, uh, false teachers then go against the plumb line, and the plumb line is God's word, and that is how we can tell if someone is speaking falsely or not, because we base our lives, and God bases his church and the growth of that church strictly on scripture. Today we're going to talk about the builders of the church. And guess who that is? That's us. And we're going to talk about the need to lead good and fruitful lives as God's builders of the church. And before we do that, though, I'm going to ask you guys to say a word of prayer with me. Father in heaven, We thank you for revealing the ways to build and maintain a healthy church. As you speak to us today, may the words I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts be true to your word and honor and glorify you. Help us to develop a greater understanding of you and your will for our lives. Amen. Okay, we're going to jump into Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And as a reminder, at the end of Titus chapter 1 now, Paul is a admonishing Titus on how to deal harshly with false leaders. So it it jumps right in here with the word however, and it's like, well, however what? So I just wanted to bring you back up to speed here. So we're talking about false teachers in chapter one. 
And then here in chapter 2, it starts this way. It says, you, however, Titus, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Here ends the reading. Now, whenever I read scripture and I come across a verse that pops out at me and gives me pause to think, or maybe I stumble on a little bit, I really can't go much further until I've kind of wrestled with that a little bit because then once I kind of wrestled with that and settled it and figured out that okay that's that's okay it's not as bad as I thought it was then I can go on and read the rest and study the rest and hear what God really has to say and so um, with this I wanted to get something out of the way as we go back and take a look at verses four and five um, we've got a slide for that up on the screen it says they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. The late, uh, <laughs> Barb, you're laughing. What's going on over there? Ladies, anything jump out at you there is something that kind of catches your attention? Got it the first time. Okay, good. We could have skipped this whole thing. No, we can't. We got to deal with it before we can move on. We don't promote a patriarchy in our society. So Paul's words today can sound a little misogynistic. And I will tell you, that I don't know how it works in your house, but I've known Debbie for 38 years, and I've never known her to be subjected to anybody, <laughs> let alone me. So um, I just wanted to kind of address this, but what Paul is simply doing, he's kind of taking a shorthanded statement from his writings in Ephesians chapter 5, and he kind of just condensed it very briefly in there. And that, that statement in Ephesians chapter 5 is, is all about instructions for Christian households. And so I don't want to belabor the point for brevity's sake. We put a couple of the verses up there. But Ephesians 5 verses 21 through 33. And we encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, but, um, but it starts out this way in verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So for starters, we got a little more parody there. And then it does say, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. But husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then in verse 33, it ends with this. It says, however, because there's some other stuff in there, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So is that a little easier to swallow? A little more balance back and forth? So we, we got the one side and the cliff note version of it in our reading this morning, and it's like, huh, if we don't deal with that, we're not going to get to deal with anything else today. So I just wanted to clear the way on that, and, uh, but the instructions for Christian households are clear, and that is that is husbands and wives simply are to love and respect one another. So with that out of the way, 
God put it on my heart to share a couple of other things to you in our reading today. And the first is this, and that's that while this is a letter from Paul to Titus, the Apostle Paul is really speaking to each of us in this entire book of the Bible, and especially in this chapter today. And it's easy to dismiss a scripture reading like Titus, and, and especially chapter 2, like we're reading today, as one preacher guy talking to another preacher guy. And then you say, like, cool, that doesn't affect me. I'm the one sitting in the chair here today, and I'm not the preacher guy, so that doesn't matter. And so as members of a congregation like we are, it's easy to just say, well, I don't need to worry about what Paul's telling Titus. I just got to worry about what Brian is telling us, right? And Brian will bring that forward to modern day teachings and everything else. But make no mistake, Paul is talking to us through these words today, and we need to take them to heart. And for starters, the reason why is that we can't expect Brian to teach us everything we know about our faith or everything we need to know about our faith. And Brian said as much last week, right? But we can't rely on him to tell us things. There are things he may forget or overlook to tell us. And Brian doesn't want that for us either. And that's why he's constantly telling us to read the scriptures for ourselves. And that's why here at Faith, Youth, and Church, we push that idea to study scripture and read scripture on a regular basis. So while Paul's telling Titus to teach these words to his people, we need to act as if Paul is telling Titus and Titus has told us this directly so that we can act on these words once we've been taught. So we need to hear these words as if they're being told directly to us. But we also need to take Paul's words to heart because it's our job to build the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, Apostle Paul writes this. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And if you go back to verse 3 and 4 of our reading today, and I just paraphrase this on the slide up there, it says, Likewise, teach the older women, then they can urge the younger women. And so while Brian's job is to help us grow as disciples and teach us so that we can ultimately teach others. And some of the pastors of the early churches, you have to understand, they were believers for all of about a couple of months before suddenly they were the pastors of their church. That's just the way it worked. There were no seasoned pastors there. And yet today, for some reason, we think people have to go to years of seminary and then have years of practical experience leading a congregation before they can basically go make disciples. We like to put it all on our paid professionals. And that's just simply not the case. So we may not be called to be pastors, but we will still have the opportunity to teach. We will have the opportunity to teach our friends, our children, our family members, the people that we come into contact with, and not teaching necessarily by preaching in a pastoral way, but just in sharing our faith and sharing what we've learned about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And when those opportunities arise, we need to know what it is that we should teach them. And so it's important to hear these words as if Paul is telling them directly to us today. The second thing that I wanted to talk about in this reading today is, hey, what happened to all the grace, right? It's all about do good, 
be good, be this, be that. How many of you remember these slides that Pastor Brian put up in his sermon last week, right? The first one about the definition of grace. It's completely undeserved. It's unmerited. It's the unearned favor of God. And then there's that second slide that said grace plus works is not grace. And grace plus nothing is grace. Remember those? God's grace. So why are we talking about good works today? Being good. Our reading today tells us to be good. But our sinful nature makes that extremely difficult, if not impossible to do. Talking about sin is never fun. Unless it's somebody else's, then it's fun. But understanding the nature of our sin helps us understand why true discipleship is so much harder than it should be. We know that once sin entered into the world, life became a lot more difficult than God originally intended. And that's because sin distorts everything and causes us to love ourselves more than we love others and we love God. And our love of self is so natural to our humanity, it can even seep in to the good deeds that we perform. And even they sometimes can be tainted by our own self-interest. And instead of seeking God, we seek our own way. And we end up rejecting God and Jesus Christ in the process. And we re reject Jesus usually in a couple of ways. Some of us reject Jesus as our Lord, and we choose instead to live lives that satisfy our own standards and our own desires. And some of us reject Jesus as our savior and we try to earn our way into a relationship with God. And some of us do both. So it doesn't really matter how we go about sinning, whether it's about rejecting Jesus as our Lord or rejecting Jesus as our savior. Romans chapter three, verse 23 tells us this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter how you do it. That's just details. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Brian promised last week this sermon would be a little uplifting compared to his last week. And I'm going to go there right now. Here's some good news from Romans. The very next verse tells us this. He says, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Okay, so you got the bad news. There's the good news. We are all freely justified. And our reading today tells us to do good, but it's important to remember that we can never do good enough to earn our salvation. We can never be good enough to earn our salvation. And only God's grace can provide that for us, that salvation. But as Christians, our lives should look different than those of non-believers. And our reading tells us why. It's for the sake of the gospel message. Verse 5 in our reading tells us to do these things so that no one will malign the word of God. And then verse 8 goes on to say this, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So while Paul is telling us to do what's right, so that we can be a good reflection of Jesus and the gospel message. That is why we need to do it. And I mentioned earlier that it is our job to build the church. And why would anyone want to buy into anything that had been built by someone who was disreputable and dishonest? 
So it's time to add another item to the blueprint for a healthy church. And that is reputable builders that's up there on the screen. God's people living righteous lives. We are the builders of God's church and we need to be reputable so people will be attracted and the gospel will be heard. Mahatma Gandhi is often quoted as saying this about Christianity. He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Interesting words. And unfortunately, that's a sentiment shared by many non-believers in society today. According to a poll conducted by the Lifeway Research Center in 2017, two-thirds of young adults aged 22 to 30 who attended church regularly in high school indicated that they left the church for at least a year after they graduated high school. And a third of those that left indicated that one of the reasons for their leaving is that people in the church seem judgmental or hypocritical. We weren't living the lives that God instructed us to be. Now here's the good news, right? Brian promised good news this week, so here's a little more good news. That same study on the next slide indicated that a third of those who stayed in the church over 40% of them said that the reason they stayed in the church was because they wanted to follow an example set by their parents or a family member. And so again, it comes back to living a godly life to set examples for other people. And that bears good fruit. So what we do say matters, but what we do matters so much more than what we say because people are watching and they see the example that we're setting for them. Now, I love contemporary Christian music, and one of my favorite praise bands is a band called Casting Crowns. And they're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the release of their first album this year, and Jenny and Garrison, our daughter and son-in-law, blessed us with the opportunity to go worship with them last weekend. And it was a really great experience. And um, that's the band on the left, in case you guys are wondering. Um, who, who, who that was. But Casting Crowns as a band was started by a youth pastor named Mark Hall back in 1999. And Mark and several of the band members are still serving as ministers and praise team members at their respective churches, one of them being Eagles Landing First Baptist Church in McDonough, Georgia. And they write amazing songs about real life struggles. And they've released 12 albums those albums have sold over 10 million copies. They've won Grammy Awards and Billboard Music Awards and Dove Awards, and they've toured across the country and even around the world. But the band also partners with Compassion International, if you're familiar with that organization. And that provides an opportunities for worshipers to sponsor children halfway through the worship service. And it's just really cool. And so of all those stats I just coughed up to you about millions of records and, and sold and number of albums and awards. One of their cooler stats is that through this partnership, as they have toured throughout the years, is over 150,000 children have been sponsored to be lifted up out of poverty and also to basically grow in discipleship in Jesus Christ through these worship services. It's just very, very powerful. But what was even more amazing to hear 
to know about Cashing Crowns as a band is they take care to intentionally schedule their tours so that they can be at worship in their home church on Sunday morning. So if you can imagine that, you're touring the country, you're touring the world in some cases, and you're back for church on Sunday morning in McDonough, Georgia. Let that just sink in for a moment. How many times have we decided to blow off church because we got home late on a Saturday night? Have you ever done it? I have. How much easier would it be to blow off church on Sunday morning if you got home late on Saturday night because you were leading a worship service with a thousand people in it? Wouldn't you be entitled to just say, I did it. I'm gone. Now, they go home to not just be at worship, but to lead worship in their home church. And I'll tell you, we got home around midnight on Saturday night, and I have no idea what time they got home. But we had about an hour and a half drive, and I can tell you that whether they flew or rode a bus, I don't know, but the nearest airport's over an hour away from where that worship service was held in Bourbonnais. And so they got home really, really late. And they're going to Georgia. So guess what? They lost another hour on the way home, just like that. So they got home very, very late. And they weren't just sitting in the back seat attending worship. They then were up front leading worship for their church. And I think that's just an awesome example of what it means to live faithfully a disciple of Jesus Christ. Forget how amazing I think their music is and how great their message is. That's where the rubber meets the road. What they sing is important, but what they do sets so much bigger of an example, so much humility and, and emphasizing the importance that worship is so important to them. Living a life that leads now, living the life that leads is easier said than done. I've been a Lutheran my entire life, but I've only known what it means to be on a road or a pathway to discipleship for about the last 15 years or so. And I've confessed in our life group many times, and I confessed to you guys this morning that before I became a true believer, I led what I called a very siloed life. And by that, I meant that while I always had a very deep and powerful faith internally. I was always blessed with that and I was always very grateful with for that. The outward manifestation of my faith would vary dramatically based on the situation that I found myself in. So I had my Jesus or my church silo that I'd bust out on Sundays or whenever I was serving in the church. And then the other days of the week, I'd have my work silo that I kind of worked in and lived in. And then interspersed to that, I'd have my dad's silo and my brother's silo and my friend's silo and I'm volunteering at this organization's silo. And so my faith would come out, not come out varying ways depending on what silo I found myself in. And when I'm in the church in the Jesus silo, oh, I was all those things that we read about in our message today. I was temperate. I was worthy of respect. I was self-controlled. I was sound in faith and love and endurance. And when I was in the other silos, though, not so much. Because I really had to think about it and be intentional about it to do that. 
Now, I'm of the belief that love is a decision that you make. When you choose to love, that's what makes it possible to love people who are difficult to love. That's what makes it possible to have enduring friendships and faithful marriages. It's not always easy and fun sometimes to be in relationship with people, and making that conscious choice to love is what allows you to do that. And I still believe that. But I could show great love and compassion when I was in my Jesus silo, and I was of the mindset to do so. But I've also learned over time that life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Life can sneak up on you, and life can get inserted into what you're doing in the moment. And the opportunities to love and show compassion don't always show up at convenient times. They don't show up at predetermined times. They don't show up in premeditated moments. And sometimes they're spontaneous and unexpected and incredibly inconvenient, quite frankly, those opportunities to love. And sadly, I often found myself missing the opportunities to be Christ to people in those moments because I wasn't already of the mindset to be prepared to do that. I wasn't thinking about it. Now, the good news is this. Again, more good news. I promise. Good news. Good news is this. God doesn't just demand that we instantly love and show compassion. He doesn't just demand that we be good or that we do good. Instead, he creates a new heart in us that loves and shows compassion by default. And he transforms us into people that want to do good and want to be good. And this process is called sanctification. And it means to make holy. It doesn't happen overnight. We don't immediately become loving and compassionate people. We don't immediately become do-gooders the second we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But as we follow along the path of discipleship, as we connect with God through worship and prayer and Bible study, as we share our lives authentically with each other in our life groups, as we serve in the church and out in the community to make Christ known to other people, as we give generously to support the mission and ministries of the church, and as we invest in the spiritual growth of others so they can become disciples of Jesus, as we do all those things, that path of discipleship, we grow spiritually too, and we become more holy over time. Sanctification doesn't happen because we have become worthy and good. It happens because of God's mercy and his grace. But as it happens, we become more worthy and good. Not worthy and good, mind you. You can't become worthy and good. But we become more worthy and good. But it's a process and it takes time. And as I've continued down the path of discipleship with Jesus, the walls of my silos have started to crumble and fall. And I found myself being loving and compassionate in spur-of-the-moment times. I still stumble backwards from time to time. I've got a long way to go. But as I continue to strive to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, I find myself being a better representative of Jesus every day. So what do we do while we're in that process of sanctification? Of becoming more righteous and more holy 
How can we possibly build God's church while we're still ongoing this process? One of the challenges of building a church is that most of us don't feel like we're skilled enough to do it or holy enough to do it. We're not qualified because of our skill or our righteousness. But the Bible tells us differently. And I want to share this with you this morning. In Acts chapter 4, 13, apostles of Peter and John, um, they were preaching the gospel and they were basically picked up by the Sanhedrin and questioned. And in verse 13, it says this, it says, when the Sanhedrin, they, the Sanhedrin, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now the word ordinary means usual or normal or of no special quality. I went ahead and put the definition up there for you. And the similar word from the Greek language is idiotes, which means a person lacking skills or expertise. That's the definition of idiotes. So I'm here chuckling. If that word idiotes looks familiar to you, it's because our word idiot is derived from it. Now, I don't know about you, but if God can use idiots to build his church, I am immediately qualified. And I'm guessing most of you are too. None of Jesus' disciples had any formal religious training. They were common, ordinary people. They were broken, sinful people. But they also had one other thing in common. And that is, they said yes when Jesus called on them. Jesus can use us too if we will just say yes. That's how we go about building this church. We say yes to receive him as our Savior and Lord. We say yes when he calls us to live changed lives. And we say yes when he calls us to disciple other people. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gift of your word that we've heard today and for the gift of your son, Jesus, whom you sent as a sacrifice for our sin, but also as a model of the godly life, the first example of what it meant to be Christ-like. We pray, Lord, that you will help us live lives that reflect well on you and your son and the gospel message even as we wrestle with our sin. And we pray that you will give us the courage and conviction to say yes. Say yes to you, Lord. Even as we struggle to grow deeper in our faith, we can wrestle with our sin and struggle with our faith, and we can still say yes. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.